Morning, glory, America. Bonjour, hi, Canada. Greetings to the rest of the world watching on Univision, which you can do at HughHewitt.com. It is the last radio hour of the week. That means it is time for the Hillsdale Dialogue. Once a week, I sit down with either Dr. Larry Arn or Dr. Matthew Spaulding, who is here today, the director of Hillsdale College's Kirby Center in Washington, D.C., which is a lighthouse of reason in the darkness of the Capitol. Uh, Dr. Spaulding joins me from the Kirby Center this morning. Matt, good morning to you. Everything Hillsdale's collected at hillsdale.edu. But we still need you to weigh in on a lot of stuff today, including <laughs> the, the, the Mueller report, the bar letter, obstruction without an underlying crime, uh, the Reed rule, judicial nominees, Brexit, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. We got a lot of ground to cover. <laughs> well. Well, Let's good start. To you. <laughs> yeah. Welcome aboard. I, I just wanted to let you know it is the pentathlon today. Let's start with the Mueller report. What do you make of it? I, I think some interesting things are going on there, and we're not yet out of the uh, out of out of the woods here. I think we're missing part of the story, uh, which is that uh, you know there's a a there are two levels of debates going on here. I think there's a legal debate about what obstruction means and the whole question about collusion. And the the content of the report, which you see in the back and forth, uh, especially with Barr's memo and some of his previous work. And then underneath that, there's a political debate going on uh, with Congress. And I think they're still pushing that hard. And I think the gap in between them is what we're really debating. Let me let me explain what I mean by that. I think the key here is going back and remembering what um, Bill Barr, before he was Attorney General, wrote in a memo on June 8th of 2018, uh, before he's nominated, before he comes Attorney General, where he questions, he sends a, a memo to the uh, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein questioning Mueller's uh, theory of obstruction that he was pursuing in this investigation, saying that it was novel and legally insupportable and, and flawed uh, and violates the definition of obstruction. And he was going to try to find this very broad. Uh, that's uh, he becomes attorney general. Um, Mueller sends the report forward. Barr responds in that short memo, uh, saying that well he found no conclusion uh, collusion, which I think is is correct. I don't think Barr is hiding anything here. But then Mueller did not take a position on obstruction, allowing, in my opinion, actually pushing Barr to conclude. It was clear from his earlier memo that there was no obstruction. Um, the question is, uh, that, that answers the legal question. The question is whether the political question has been answered. And I think the response there is, well, actually, the political question has not been answered. And Congress still wants to keep that political question open because Congress, a political body, can still conclude the political question that he did obstruct in their opinion, which is to say impeachment is still on the table. So I want to go back and st- and stand the legal question for a moment. I want to remind everyone that Attorney General Barr is a lawyer's lawyer. Before he Correct. was this Attorney General, he was Attorney General before, and before he was Attorney General before, he was the Assistant Attorney General for the Office of Legal Counsel. That is the brain. The lawyer's lawyer in the Department of Justice Correct. is the uh, AAG for OLC. His deputy at the time is now former federal judge Michael Ludig, who, uh, along with Chief Justice John Roberts, 
were considered the smartest guys in the government. Barr is in that class. Those three are the smartest guys right. in the government. And so Absolutely. when he says that there is no way to advance the theory that Mueller is advancing without imperiling not merely Trump, but everyone in government. I've read the Barr memo from June of last year, and he's saying... Every member of Congress will be imperiled by this. Everybody in the world will be imperiled by this. This is a terrible oh, so that, yeah, out of control. Disastrous uh, idea. It opens up a can of worms that would destroy the rule of law. He's, but, he's very clear. It's a powerful memo. He's right. Now, I think what's going on here, and this is not original to me, it is original to a very wise old lawyer in Washington, D.C., is that Mueller refused to conclude as a sort of payback because Trump wouldn't talk to him. So that when we get the report, we're going to see Mueller say, I can't conclude on obstruction because the president wouldn't talk to me. Uh, that which, which will end the political debate. If that is in fact what he says, I can't conclude because the president wouldn't talk to me. Do you believe that will bring the curtain down on all but the extremists on the political debate, uh, Dr. Matt Spaulding? I, I, I think it leaves the political question open, and, and it potentially is going to have the, the effect of really dividing the, the, the critics, on, on, especially on the left. Consider what's happened. They've put so much emphasis into this report. I think Mueller has, has – we don't know the particulars of the content. We just know the memo. Uh, he has delivered his report. He did not make a conclusion. Uh, why he did not make the conclusion and what he presents there can go different directions. But I, I think inherently it will, it will have to leave open the possibility that it can be interpreted politically, not legally. I think Barr has shut that door. But politically, it could still be understood to leave plenty of room open, which means you're going to have these groupings now. And, and you see it. You see it. Even Barr's memo has, I think, forced a lot of the progressive left to, to uh, break apart and split on these interpretations. They were previously united on collusion, and now they're going in different directions, figuring out what to do and how to position themselves, because there's still a large group on the left, especially the, the progressive left in the, in, in the Congress, that would like to see this as grounds for, if not uh, actual impeachment hearings, but at the very least making this a central political move. Uh, going into a campaign, and now I think we're seeing a, a, a political battle, but it, but it does turn on this legal question like Barr has rightly put uh, front and center. Mueller didn't conclude in his report, and that leaves room, I think, perhaps for someone Mueller's staff, and uh, there was a report in today's Post and last night's New York Times, uh, staff being upset that uh, their view was not put forward, my guess is some of them intended this to leave, specifically leave that question open so that Congress is shift, essentially shift the football to Congress to keep that political argument alive. I'm talking with Dr. Matt Spaulding, head of the Kirby Center, which you can follow on Twitter at the Kirby Center uh, from Hillsdale College, uh, all things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. Now, we will find out, Dr. Spaulding, because that part of the Mueller report dealing with the obstruction non-charge is not going to be classified. In fact, in the bar letter, there is a reference to public acts by the president, uh, meaning that we're going to see that part. The part we're not going to see is the intelligence and the classified material about how we found out about what the GRU do when, when they attacked our election. 
Key finding, not one American, not the president, not any member of his campaign team, not any member of his family, not one American conspired with the Russians to impact and attack our election. That's the key finding. That's all going to be partially redacted and classified because of the means that we have ascertained uh, that conclusion. But what will not be classified is if they believe firing Comey uh, could have been obstruction, and if they believe that the president's tweets could have been construed as obstruction, if they believe any of that, but that we can't decide because the president didn't talk to us, that will all be unclassified. And I think it risks embarrassing the Mueller team. And let me tell you one other thing, Matt, it is against the code of prosecutorial ethics to leak. So I do not believe prosecutors are leaking this. It says staff, I would look for a bureau agent or somebody else to be leaking this, not Andrew Weissman, not one of the lawyers. They would have to be shedding their ethics in a way that could get them disbarred if anyone leaked who was leaking. No, that, it, it, you look at these uh, reports in today's paper, the New York Times, it's, we're talking about third or fourth level, right? It's someone who knew something, who knew a staff on Mueller's team. It's, it's a long train here. I, I think that um, I think you're absolutely right about what, what Mueller was doing and what he was restrained to do, given what Barr reminded him of in terms of what obstruction meant. Uh, I, I think he couldn't conclude, uh, and, he, and he, he gave that to Barr to rightly make that, that call. Having said that, I think he, um, because of the nature of what, how he was pursuing this, has left a door open which you, you just know is going to be pushed by some, especially in the political world, to try to keep that argument alive. I think they've invested so much into this report and so much into its conclusions, it's hard for them to accept that, drop it, and move on. Well, you know, it's the five stage of grieving. Battle. It's the, you know, first the five stages of grief, according to Kubler-Ross, are anger, right. denial, bargaining, depression, uh, acceptance. We're not the, the left can't get over this. I mean, it's two weeks. They can't get over this. You got thirty seconds. Matt Spaulding will come back on the other side of the break. Will they ever get over this? I, I don't think they can. I, I think they've got to figure out a way to push this and keep it alive enough to go into the election and put everything on the possibility of bringing this president down. And it's become as. Previous impeachments have been before a completely political question, and we're now outside the realm of the legal. And there is no way he would ever be removed from office. There's, I don't even think he gets an impeachment vote, so I think it is politically self-destructive of the Democrats to pursue this. We'll continue to talk about that with Hillsdale College's Dr. Matt Spaulding, head of the Kirby Center, right after this. It is the Hillsdale Dialogue. All things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. Chew Hewitt in the ReliefFactor.com studio. It is the Hillsdale Dialogue. Once a week in the last radio hour of the week, I talk with either Dr. Learn, president of Hillsdale College, or one of his colleagues like Dr. Matt Spaulding, who is the director of the Kirby Center, which is the Hillsdale Lantern of Reason in the shadow of the Capitol, about the big issues that go back. We've been doing this since 2013. If you want to binge, listen, and redeem your day in a car, go to HughForHillsdale.com and go all the way back to Homer up to the present day. Today we're talking about the present day, and I want to talk to you about the Reed Rule, uh, which was deployed by Mitch McConnell this week, to break uh, the delaying tactics of the Democrats. By simple majority, they changed the rules of the Senate to limit to two hours the debate on everyone not nominated for a cabinet judge, a uh, cabinet position, a Supreme Court seat, or a circuit judgeship. 
Everyone else right. gets two hours of debate post-cloture. Uh, the Democrats have been running the clock out 30 hours of debate on every nominee. They've just basically sludged up the system. I'm glad McConnell did this. It's the third exercise of the Reid rule, the first time by Reid to pack the D.C. Circuit, the second time by uh, McConnell to end the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees, and now this one. What do you think, Matt Spaulding? I, I think it was not in a, the right thing to do under the circumstances, which is, say, the prudent thing to do. Um, but I think this just you know, uh, warms my constitutional heart because I, I think in this case – it is an example of a restoration of the proper processes yes. of, the, of the Senate. Um, the, the, let's back up for one second here and think about what the larger problem is here. The Senate no longer deliberates. The purpose of the Senate is to deliberate. It's supposed to be the, that, uh, uh, the, brand, the part of, of Congress, the House of Congress, that thinks long-term and debates and argues and then does things. That's its, its, its job is still to pass laws. Its stop, job is still to approve nominations and give advice and consent to the president. Uh, the problem is that a lot of these rules, and these are rules, these are not laws, and they're not in the Constitution. These are rules of the Senate. Uh, the rules are becoming uh, ipso facto pocket vetoes to gum up the whole system so the Senate doesn't do its job. And, and that's a real problem that, in my opinion, really constitutes a constitutional dilemma uh, 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 that prevents them from doing their duty. And, and so Matt, here, I think that, uh, yeah, go ahead. I, I want to point out the United States Constitution is written down and it commits certain things to the Senate to do. And some things it says the Senate may only do by super majorities. One, for example, they may only ratify a treaty by two thirds vote. Right. One of the or they may only ratify an amendment to the Constitution by two thirds vote. One of the powers explicitly committed to the Senate is to advise and consent to nominees. They're supposed to do that. And they're to do it as a Senate without a supermajority. That means to me, it has always been extra constitutional to have the filibuster. Now, they can have a filibuster on the legislative side without offending the Constitution, but they are told to advise and consent. It is supposed to be a majoritarian principle. That's why you can block Merrick Garland or anyone else because the Republicans had the majority, but they are supposed to vote or decide on the nominees, yay or nay, and the majority is supposed to rule on nominees. No, that, 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 that's absolutely right. In making that distinction between legislative and judicial, uh, legislative filibuster and I would say judicial nominations filibusters is, is, is very important here. And let's, let's remember a little bit of history. I mean, prior to, um, the, the, this is called Rule 22, it comes in in 1949, and between then and 2000, there are something over 2,000 judges that are confirmed by the U.S. Senate. There are only 12 cloture uh, votes, and I think only a couple of failures. This is only a, a recent phenomena after the 2000 election uh, when they started in, in, under, the, under the Bush administration calling regular cloture votes to block nominations. Patrick uh, Leahy did this. Patrick Leahy and Harry Reid began this descent into paralysis. And so the, the first move here was to actually take the two things you, you recognize as divided, meaning a legislative filibuster – and a filibuster front on nominations, and they united them in a way that I think was uh, improper procedurally, but also raises a, a larger constitutional problem of preventing them from practicing their advice and consent rules. Uh, yeah. And this is why it's a restoration to go back to that. 
It is a restoration. It is long overdue. It is a good thing. And Majority Leader McConnell remains the best, the best legislative leader the Republicans have had in my lifetime. Don't go anywhere. I'm coming right back with Matt Spaulding. Except the Hillsdale.edu. Sign up for Imprimus and stay tuned to the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt in the ReliefFactor.com studio. It is the Hillsdale Dialogue, the last radio hour of the week when I go big with one of the big brains from Hillsdale College, the Lantern of Reason in the North. And Hillsdale College collects all of its online courses at hillsdale.edu. They're completely free. If you go to hillsdale.edu, you'll not only find the application for yourself or your son or daughter or grandson or granddaughter, you'll also find Imprimus, a free speech digest that will come to you the old-fashioned way in the mail. You'll also find a link to hugh4hillsdale.com, where our collected, every Hillsdale dialogue we've had since uh, 2013, for your binge listening, beginning with Homer up to the present day. This week, we are blitzing a number of subjects. Uh, my guest is Dr. Matthew Spaulding. He is the director of the Kirby Center, which is Hillsdale's lighthouse of reason in the shadow of the Capitol, a wonderful institution that educates and inspires every single day, not just Hillsdale students, but members of Congress and members of the community. Matt Spaulding, I, I have to ask you to listen with me to a two-minute and 20-second excerpt of an Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez Twitter video. Now, I'm not one of those who make fun of her. I think she's very charismatic. I think she is going to be a force in the Democratic Party forever. But she says some things in this video which are actually quite destructive of conversation because it's the it's the right side of history argument. I want you to listen to it and respond to it. Here is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez talking about climate change and the people who are on the wrong side of the history, what they're like. Cut number 12. How many years until the world ends again? We have 12 years left to cut emissions by at least 50%, if not more. And for everyone who wants to make a joke about that, You may laugh, but your grandkids will not. So understand that the internet documents everything. And for all those people, you know, you want to look about, you want to talk about looking in the back of history, looking backwards. You look back and you open history books on the civil rights movement and you see those folks who are protesting against the ability for African-Americans and black Americans to have the right to vote. And they would hold up these bigoted signs and they would hold up signs that said things like, what about white rights and like all of this stuff in in the 1950s, 1960s. So just know that in the present day, there are a lot of people who hide the fact that their families and that their grandparents fought again against principles of equal rights in the United States. Not a hundred years ago, not 80 years ago, but in this generation's lifetime. So just know that while a lot of people can hide that their grandparents did that in the civil rights movement, You should also know that the internet documents everything and your grandchildren will not be able to hide the fact that you fought against 
acknowledging and taking bold actions on climate change. And people who are trying to mock and delay this moment, I mean, I just feel bad for you. I just pity you for your role in history right now. So Matt Spaulding, uh, first of all, that's not an argument. It's a slander. It compares right. people who oppose climate change hysteria to Bull Durham and the racists. Moreover, uh, she ought to have named Al Gore Sr. as someone, uh, Bull Connor. Uh, Durham is where the movie Best of Enemies is set. It's a very fine movie about desegregation integration in the South that's out this weekend. Bull Connor, of course, it, what she's doing is saying that if you're opposed to my agenda, you are a racist segregationist, and history will record you as such. That is not an argument. That is a slander. It's because she doesn't have an argument, because China and India are driving this bus. Your reaction, Matt Spaulding? Well, no, no, I, that's right. Look, this is an <clears throat> argument about, uh, I, would, I would call this guilt by association. This is a, by her own admission, she actually uses the, you know, looking backwards of history. This is uh, a problem, an intellectual problem on on the left, especially, but within mod, kind of modern liberalism, that we look at history backwards and we see what we want to see in order to make our argument going forwards. So I, I think you're right. I mean, she's she's a serious political figure. We underestimate her by I think uh, laughing at her too much. Oh, this is this is a pretty ridiculous video. This is like Beto getting his teeth done, but 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 more more substantive than that. But look, she's this is not she's not Rousseau in the revolution. She's but she I fear she might be a more of a Robespierre type, right? She's pushing the revolution. Oh, you just lost all the Steelers fans right there. (laughs) I got it. But you're going to you're going to have to explain that a little bit. She is not the theoretician of the revolution. She's not the theoretician. She's not the brains behind it. She's not the uh, the modern thinker who's going to write these great books about where uh, the left should go. She's the activist. She's pushing it, and she's going to use arguments, whatever is necessary, to push that political argument forward. And this is this is a great example of that, right? Now, we're not going to argue, by the way. There's an interesting Robespierre uh, analogy here. Uh, Stanley McChrystal has got a new book out in which he talks about the leadership qualities of Robespierre, even though he was a killer. He would remain in his garret. He lived very simply. He lived at the top of the revolution, and he, and he dealt with the people until eventually the revolution turned on him. But he was not gouging the revolution. I don't think Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is gouging the revolution either, although she's had some FEC no, complaints. I, 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 I'm taking him as a serious figure in history. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and, he, and, he, and he I think she is. the revolution. And I think she is. Uh, but the point is, we, sometimes we, we kind of underestimate her because we expect her to come out with these... Uh, these these uh, deep understandings of liberalism and make these arguments about what we believe in in great length. That's not what she's doing. It tells you something about where we are in this debate. We're at the point where modern liberalism thinks they have won the debate intellectually, and now it's about cleaning up and, and, and furthering the revolution. I think they look back historically and see we, we've had uh, moments where this has been pushed forward with progress's advance, the progressive movement, the the New Deal, the Great Society, they want to jumpstart that. They think they've won the debate. Let's push and push hard, which is why they're in a position of taking no prisoners on their own, within their own party. They will take no prisoners, but also they're going to associate anybody in any opposition with the worst aspects of history, setting aside whether they get that history right for a moment. But they want to associate them politically uh, in the public sense 
uh, with the worst activists of history because their objective here is not to win a historical debate or an intellectual debate, but to win a political debate. And I think that's what this shows uh, in, in spades. This is just uh, their minds have been formed so much that these are um, uh, individuals who are so convinced of the, the, the path of history and the arc of history going forward that they are, they are completely in the activist now, mode. Now, what, what she's trying to do is delegitimize an argument by slandering the people who make it, not because of the argument they are making. I always make the argument that we need to adapt and mitigate because China and India are not stopping their emissions. Uh, but she's, she doesn't want to engage in that. And, in fact, you just no, mentioned... Uh, I try and take her very seriously. She's had a bad week because she publicly went out there and said that the amendment limiting the presidency to two terms was passed to stop FDR from winning another term. It, in fact, right, was right. not even introduced into the House. A little biological problem there. Yeah, he was dead. Uh, and it, didn't, right. it wasn't ratified until 1951 <laughs> or two. And so she has a right. problem persuading people of her heft. Uh, intellectual heft. I don't think we should focus on that. And our friends over at Media Matters for America, they're always trying to quote me out of context to make it sound like I am uh, dismissing her. I'm not. I think she's a very powerful activist in the way that, as you point out, Robespierre became an activist, not an ideologue. It was Rousseau who built the French Revolution. Right. It was Robespierre who carried it out. And I think it's AOC and her friends on the far left who want to delegitimize rather than answer the argument, because you don't have to answer an argument of someone who's been delegitimized. I don't have to argue with a, a white Aryan racist. They're delegitimized. By now, we all know they're evil. But she doesn't want to argue with people who say adapt and mitigate. She wants you to be obliged to accept no more cows, no more cars. No, that's right. We're beyond the – this is why we can say we're kind of in a post-constitutional period here in terms of the debate. Uh, this is – it's ideology. We're debating ideology. And as far as she's concerned, it's not a rational debate. This is not a policy discussion. We're not setting up a conversation about climate change at all. This really is about uh, moving the next phase of the historical phase of the revolution – uh, and doing that is is a political question, despite anything having to do with with uh, with reason or with facts or history, for that matter. And I always have uh, to it's note a um, type of discussion. I always have to note because of this uh, this guy or gal over at Media Matters. What do we call them, Dwayne? Um, there's someone over at Media Matters who's listening. Emo. To it. Uh, Emo. Emo listens to every minute of the show, and they always mischaracterize it. We do not believe that AOC is advocating violence. We don't. We think that AOC is a serious political figure with great charisma and great power. What she is doing is advocating an abandonment of persuasion. She is advocating the abandonment of uh, politics, actually, Matt. Uh, she doesn't want to do politics. Let me, let, me, let me clarify what I mean. When I say revolution, I don't mean it in the, in the violent sense of overthrowing and cutting people's heads off. Right. I, I mean in the sense that we're having – we have come to a point in, the, in, in our kind of constitutional development in our politics that – we are now having a debate about whether we should or should not stay within this broad form of constitutionalism that is heretofore defined what was the framework of American politics. And I think uh, she is acting, as with many people on the progressive left, are acting completely outside of that structure because they think they've defeated it and that debate is over. So in that sense, it's revolutionary intellectually and politically 
to be and it's a transformative thing. Uh, they've, they've established those battles. We've fought them in the past. And now we're moving forward regardless of what you think about the particulars. And that is a denial of, of when I say broadly constitutionalism, is it's denial of, of a notion that there is a framework called the rule of law by which we, uh, as citizens of different political parties, have rational and reasonable discussions about differences, and they're settled through the process of, of uh, representation and voting and debate and legal decisions. Um, and I think the, the modern left wants to sees all that as barriers. That's all in the way of progress. So let's move it forward. Let's let's get around all that by going directly to a ideological debate, and to do so uh, in a way that, regardless of the facts, that, that cuts off debate. And I'll be right back to continue the debate about Brexit with Dr. Matthew Spaulding of the Kirby Center at Hillsdale.edu. Welcome back, America, to the ReliefFactor.com studio. My thanks again to Matt Sambol and soon to be a dad, Bruna. We think that should be her name, Bruna. Uh, that's the feminine. Bruno Mars. Uh, I am joined in my Hillsdale dialogue today by none other than Dr. Matthew Spaulding of uh, the Kirby Center. And Matt, I want to close with our fourth subject of the day. We've been moving through stuff. Normally that we do big issues and long ago, but there's so much happening that is of consequence for many hundreds of years. One of those things is in the United Kingdom where Theresa May today is on her knees asking, begging the EU for an extension of Article 50 in what is, to my way of thinking, a complete repudiation of the people's right to rule in Great Britain. It is astonishing to me. She should resign. Everybody but her knows that. I could have negotiated a better Brexit deal from my radio studio in California. It is absurd that the United Kingdom is on its knees asking Germany to let it do things. I mean, what is your reaction to this total collapse of popular, uh, of free democracy in Britain. Look, and the the, uh, the 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 argument for Brexit, which was for Great Britain exiting the European Union, was that the European Union to become increasingly heavy-handed, regulatory, and we want to rule ourselves. Uh, Great Britain uh, votes to to exit. Um, the Prime Minister was there to carry out that decision, but she brings into her cabinet. People who want to remain. Remember, she was in favor of remaining. She did not want to favor. She did not favor Brexit, and so her cabinet is mixed on this. And she's been delicate about it the whole time, trying to figure out how to do it, but really not do it. So I, I think it proves a, a couple of things. This is at this point. This is actually less about the European Union and more about England uh, and the politics in that country right now. Which is this is a monumental wasted opportunity. Uh, in which an independent country could reestablish its independence and show that they are, could govern themselves outside the European Union as a model for the rest of the Western nations uh, outside of this uh, regulatory, montr- regulatory monstrosity uh, in a way that would show that it's possible to have an independent economy and a nation. And it's just complete disaster. I think it's a, a terrible missed opportunity. And I think the, 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 the problem lies here at the feet of the prime minister. And among other things, it shows you a problem with a parliamentary system. The, uh, the idea that you know, she was the executive of that country meant to carry out the will of the British people, and she is not from day one. And I think that is now patently obvious. She's moved to try to cut deals with the Labor Party. Now she's on her knees asking for an extension. Um, 
It's a disaster. I think she needs to be replaced. But the problem is that this reveals a lot about the state of British politics. Who's going to step in and do this in a way that would actually carry it out without being a worse disaster? Are we going to turn it over to the, you know, is this going to be turned over to the, the hard left socialist over there? I mean, this really is a bad thing. I mean, I think the Conservative Party is actually in a tough position, perhaps in a position where they might lose uh, a lot. They may splinter. I am reminded of when the British uh, Liberal Party split, when Joseph Chamberlain left. I'm reminded of when Robert Peel, 200 years ago, not personally remembered, but Robert Peel split the Conservative Party over the Corn Laws. Right now, Theresa May is close to splitting the Conservative Party between the Remain and the Leave that would then empower Jeremy Corbyn, a Marxist, to be the... uh, I I think the Five Eyes Agreement, where uh, the free peoples of the world combine their surveillance techniques, will be imperiled, because I don't trust Corbyn, and a lot of people don't. Don't trust Corbyn not to give everything to the communists and to the dictators of the world. So this is a real moment where if they would go hard Brexit and put Michael Gove or Rob or one of the or, or Boris Johnson or one of the serious people, Liam Fox, in charge, they'd go right, hard Brexit and that's right. They, they'd start to negotiate from, OK, we're at the WTO. The United States trades with Europe. If the U.K. leaves on a hard crash out, they'll just go negotiate with Europe. I don't understand it. So, look, this is, this is a, a nice case study, a model of a larger problem in, in Western constitutional countries uh, in the modern era. We have, we, meaning the United States and Western Europe, have all moved towards these modern, bureaucratic, administrative, centralized ways of governing. And we have now, all of us collectively, are coming to a point where we need to make decisions about whether that's the way we want to live or do we want to go in a different direction? We're having those debates here, which, among other things, produce somebody called Donald Trump. Uh, they're having that debate there, and it's in the context of Brexit. If, if this completely fails and the conservative party is split and England goes to the, to the, the Marxist, you, you've lost your one uh, example and possibility of breaking from that mode of, le- of, of governance in Western Europe. What's to well, – you know, and so now we're left alone – trying to make this battle against this administrative form of ruling and trying to assert self-government. We, we, we need to see, England needs to succeed in this to, to establish that as a possibility. Indeed, and that is... That would be a terrible loss for Western civilization. They need to succeed in leaving the EU. They need to. Matt Spaulding, director of the Kirby Center, thank you for doing this week's Hillsdale Dialogue. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu.